You can open up your Bibles to John chapter 5. Our ushers are coming up and down the aisle with Bibles to those who may need to borrow one, or if you don't own one, this is our gift to you. I want to talk this morning about authority. And we'll get a definition of authority up on the screen here. Authority is the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. That's a, a dictionary definition of what authority is. The give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. The power to do those three things. Now, authority is not exactly a celebrated concept in our culture today. Uh, at different times or different places of the world, uh, authority is something that is, that is revered, something that is, that is honored, something that is treasured, something that is protected. Uh, but in our world, uh, political authority, parental authority, legal authority, spiritual authority, all kinds of authority are, are under attack, are under a criticism, under suspicion. In fact, in our culture, really the only acceptable authority in our society is the authority of self. That we are the only ones who can, who can make decisions, who can, uh, who can enforce uh, o- o- obedience. We should uh, never expect someone else to do that to us. Well, you don't have to, you don't have to know too much about Jesus or, or to get too deep into the gospel of John that we've been studying verse by verse and line by line together as a church to know that this issue of authority Jesus has sort of been on a collision course with the religious authorities who were living at the time. Now you might be here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You're thinking, well, I, I I don't think that Jesus is an authority in my life. And you might be here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ. But something that you need to recognize about yourself and about every single human being on planet earth is that even though we may want Jesus to be the authority of our lives, there's something deep down inside each and every one of us that kind of chafes under his authority. That kind of wants to wiggle out from from under it, to have some authority on our own, some sort of uh, autonomy personally. Well, in John chapter 5, we have such a clear a clear picture of the ultimate authority that Jesus Christ possesses. We're going to see a demonstration of his authority, a declaration of his authority, and then a defense of his authority. John chapter 5 kind of plays out like a court case. Jesus gets put on trial for doing a good deed, not committing a crime, but for doing an act of kindness, a miracle towards someone who had been suffering for almost four decades. And Jesus is on trial. But it's a very confusing trial. The, the, the people who think that they're the judge, they're actually the accused. And the accused is actually the judge. And, and then they're trying to figure out who is the defense attorney and who is, is, is prosecuting. And so I want to show you first the deed and then the court case that kind of uh, follows And so we're going to begin with the demonstration. So if you're taking notes today, we're going to look at at the beginning of John chapter 5. We're eventually going to make our way through this entire chapter this morning. And this is the first thing I want you to write down. That Jesus demonstrates his authority. He demonstrates his authority. He has the power to, to make a decision to heal this man who had been suffering for so long. Jesus demonstrates his authority, John 5 verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. 
In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going in, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. And there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is a demonstration of Jesus' authority. In verse 1, it, it describes the setting. Jesus is back in Jerusalem. And, and this is kind of how the narrative flows in the Gospel of John. Jesus is up in Galilee, John chapter 1. He goes down into Jerusalem, John chapter 2. Then he's back up in Galilee, John, John chapter 4. Now he's going back down to Jerusalem in John chapter 5. All these trips back and forth. And it says he went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is actually south of Galilee, but it's higher in elevation. Jerusalem was sort of in a, a, a mountainous region, so you always describe it as going up to Jerusalem. And he goes to this place called Beth- Bethesda, this pool. And at this pool, there was this, this multitude of people. Do you see it there in, in verse 3? In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now normally after verse 3, you would expect to see verse 4. But look in your Bible. After verse 3, in most of our Bibles, comes verse 4. If you have a 1611 King James Version, you might still have verse 4 there. Maybe you have brackets around it in your Bible. You see, as the years go by, we don't become less in touch or, or have less accurate translations of the Bible. We actually have more accurate translations of the Bible. The King James, when it was, when it was being uh, translated uh, almost four, four centuries ago, was, was, was translated based on the best manuscripts that were available at the time. But we've had 400 years of research in archaeology and scholarship. And, and, and as the scholars have looked at the, the original, uh, original copies of the Gospel of John, the oldest possible versions, that verse, verse 4, is not in the oldest ones. And so what, what happened is, along the line, someone, as they were copying out the Gospel of John, they wanted to help us understand verse 7. Look down at verse 7, where it says, The sick man said, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. Well, what is that about? Well, someone had inserted verse 4, and there's a footnote in my Bible, you probably have it there, that there was this belief that an angel would go and stir up the water to make miraculous healing Power, uh, possible. 
And so someone had added that in to, to help us understand what's going on in the story. It was an additional note, not part of the, uh, of the original uh, Gospel of John. That's why most Bibles today put it as a footnote. More about that when we get into John chapter, uh, chapter 8 um, in, a, in a, couple of, a couple of weeks. So Jesus finds this man and he asks him in verse 6, Do you want to be healed? It's interesting, there's all of these people all around this pool, and he zeroes in on one man. Now this story is really different than the official. The official came all the way from Capernaum to Cana, and he was seeking healing for his son. He went and sought out Jesus, but now we see Jesus going and seeking out this guy who wasn't even looking for him, hadn't even heard about Jesus, and didn't even really have a whole lot of faith, did he? Jesus had to ask him, do you want to be healed? And if you look at his answer, it's quite depressing. He says, I have no one. You see, this, this man lying by the pool was, was a lot like, like we can get. His focus was on people. He thought that, that other human beings were really the only solution to his problem. And he said, I have no one to help me. He was only looking on the horizontal level, not on the vertical. So often the answer to our problems is not The answer is not other people, but the answer is looking up to God. He says, I have no one to put me into the pool. This man also thought that his healing could only happen in one certain way. He had it all figured out. And so often we can do this in our relationship with God. Even if we stop looking horizontal and we begin to look vertically, we say, God, I want you to, to do something great in my life or to perform a miracle. But we, we say, but here's the box in which I want you to do it. See, this man had no category for healing outside of that pool. And for 38 years, that was his plan to to be healed when those waters were, were stirred up. But Jesus said to him, just with a word, in verse 8, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. And as we've been reading the Gospel of John, we, we've, we've noticed that John pays a lot of attention to days and times. Remember the woman at the well? She came there at the sixth hour. Well, why did he give that detail? Well, because no one else went and got water at the sixth hour. She was a social outcast. She was tired of people judging her. That's why she went at the time where she knew no one else would be there. And then the, the official son that was healed, that happened at the seventh hour. John is always paying attention to the times that things are happening. And, and John is very intentional in letting us know that this happened on the Sabbath. Notice how in verse 8, Jesus said, take up your bed. Then in verse 9, it says, the man took up his bed. Then look at verse 10. So the Jews, that refers, refers to the Jewish leaders, uh, said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Verse 11. But he said to them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed. Verse 12. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed? So obviously there's a problem with this taking up your bed thing. It's repeated five times. Take up your bed. Take up your bed. So he took up his bed. Who told you to take up his bed? I took up my bed. Take up my bed. It's because it happened on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, it, the, the, the Hebrew word, it means rest, but it actually means something deeper than rest. It means to cease from work. 
And God gave the command of the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 10. God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, the seventh day is a Sabbath, a rest, a ceasing from work to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work. Now this, this began in the wilderness when God had provided manna, bread from heaven for the people. And he had them gather the manna off the ground for six days. But on the seventh day, they weren't supposed to go out and gather manna. They were supposed to trust in God's provision. The whole point of the Sabbath was to trust God, to rest and trust that God will provide. Now the reason why these Jewish leaders were so concerned about this is because Jeremiah, one of the great prophets that was trying to warn the people and steer them away from sin so that they wouldn't get exiled by the Babylonians, Jeremiah had this to say in the 17th chapter of his book, thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day. Or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath. Or do any work. But keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Now, Jeremiah was telling them, don't carry a burden. And the Jewish leaders wanted to be so careful that they didn't break the law. They took Jeremiah's words so seriously That they didn't want to be caught carrying anything on the Sabbath day. But if you go back to verse 8, Jesus had intentionally told this man, pick up your bed. He could have just said, you're healed, go and walk away. But Jesus intentionally said, no, take up your bed. You see... The Jewish leaders had lost lost the, the forest for the trees. They had forgotten the importance of the Sabbath. The point of the Sabbath was to stop working to trust God. Now, the man was not going to take his bed and go plow a field with it. He wasn't going to go dig a ditch. He wasn't taking it to the market to sell it to someone. He was taking his bed because he didn't need to be staying at the pool anymore. He could go home. And and Jesus said in another place, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. The the Sabbath was a gift from God. And and these religious leaders were, were adding these additional rules, making people feel guilty just for doing simple everyday tasks. So Jesus had orchestrated all of this on purpose, healed this man on a Sabbath on purpose, had him take up his bed on purpose, all all to prove a point, all to show the kinds of authority that he had. Now the Jewish leaders, they were accustomed to having authority. So that's why they get really upset. And they ask in verse 12, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed? Who is the one who who claimed to have authority that they could break our rules about the Sabbath? So the man didn't know. I guess there was a crowd and Jesus, again, so many of his miracles up until this point have been incognito. No one knew that it was him except the disciples who turned the water into wine. And, And 
only, only the, the servants initially knew that the son of the official had been healed. And right now, that even the man who was healed didn't know who Jesus was. But again, things are going to change here. John chapter 5 is a real turning point. Up until now, it's just been like miracles and people believe. And miracles and people believe. But now there's some controversy. And so Jesus is going to make himself known. He's going to take credit for the miracle. If you look at verse 14, it says, Afterward, Jesus found him. This is the second time. This man doesn't go looking for Jesus. Jesus found him at the pool, and then he found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What could be worse than being an invalid for 38 years? And Jesus is going to talk about that later uh, in the chapter. So the man went away, and he told the Jews, I'm in verse 15, who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, rather than at other times, in other parts of the gospel, Jesus gets into these arguments, these discussions, these debates about the meaning and the purpose of the Sabbath. Jesus skips over all of that and goes right to the issue of authority. In verse 17, he says, My father is working until now, and I am working. Now look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. See, the whole tone of the book is changing now. It's not just miracles and believing and miracles and believing. Now there's a collision course on the issue of authority. And it's going to end at uh, the cross. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that's what their first issue was. But Jesus' answer to the Sabbath question is that he, he was even calling God his own father. Making himself Equal with God. So notice, Jesus is setting this whole thing up. He sought out the man on the Sabbath to perform a healing. He told that man to carry his bed. When he got questioned about the Sabbath, he didn't deflect and get into some theological discussion. He started talking about God as his father. Jesus is pushing himself forward now. And and In demonstrating his authority. And in this next section, he is going to declare his authority. And so if you're taking notes today, Jesus declares his authority. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 29 here. Let me read uh, this section. It says, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus declares his authority and under that heading, jot this down, he is equal with the Father in activity. He is equal with the Father in activity. Going back to verse 17, Jesus said, My Father is working until now and I am working And then in verse 19, he says, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Jesus is saying, like father, like son. He's sort of using like an, an apprentice metaphor. That his father is showing him what to do and how to do it. And Jesus says, the kind of things that God does, those are the things that I do, because I am God. God creates, I create. God sustains, I sustain. God judges, I judge. God speaks, I speak. God heals, I heal. God rescues, I rescue. God saves, I save. God provides, I provide. Jesus is saying, like father, like son. Then in verse 20 it says, the father loves the son. And that greater works than these will be shown. Greater works than taking someone who has been paralyzed for 38 years. Think about the muscular atrophy that would have been happening in that man's legs. They would have been like toothpicks. And and this was an unquestionable miracle. Because all of the ligaments and the muscles and the bones would have been restored in an instant when Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. And Jesus says, you're going to see greater things than these. What are the greater things? It's the resurrection of the dead. That's what he's getting at, that the dead are going to come from life. Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Those are the, the greater things. He's equal with the Father in activity. Also make note of this, he's equal with the Father in honor. In honor. Verse 22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Notice that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is equal with the Father in terms of honor. Now notice how there is always a distinction between the Father and the Son. When we talk about the Trinity, we talk about Jesus being God and the Father being God, but we're not saying that Jesus is the Father. And when we talk about the Spirit being God and the Spirit and and the Father being God, we're not saying that the Father is the Spirit. So there is this unity, this synergy, this equality in activity, this equality in honor, but they are not the same. There's complete unity, and yet there is a distinction. But for Jesus, in, in verse 23, to honor the Son is the same as, as honoring the Father. The, the Son is worthy of the same 
honor as the Father is worthy. Now think about the implications of this. Think about the implications of this as we talk about other world religions. We are grieving, aren't we, with our, with our Muslim neighbors in light of what, what took place in, in New Zealand last week. Just absolutely horrific. We, we grieve with them, but we, we don't grieve with them in some sort of false unity in saying that we all believe the same thing. Muslims do not honor the Son. They do not say that Jesus is the Son of God. They do not say that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so we can stand side by side with them. We can mourn with them and weep with them. We can agree that human beings are made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and should never be treated in that way. But there is a, there is a, a significant difference between what they believe and what we believe. And they believe that they, are, that they are honoring God by dishonoring Jesus. But Jesus here says, no, if you don't honor me, then you're not honoring the Father who sent me. Your friendly neighborhood Jehovah's Witness does not honor the Son. Mormons do not honor the Son. And so we need, we need to be clear and understand this is a uniquely Christian doctrine that Jesus lays out for us here. He must be honored in the same way that the Father is honored. To not honor the Son is to dishonor the Father. So Jesus makes that very, very clear. He's equal with the Father in honor. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, there's the key word in the Gospel of John, 98 times it's written down, Whoever believes him who sent me has eternal life. This is how you get eternal life. If, if you believe in him, you get eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you get Jesus wrong, you get God wrong. You get the afterlife wrong. You get religion wrong. You get everything wrong. If you get Jesus right, you get eternal life. You get forgiveness, you get grace, you get meaning, you get purpose, you get all of these. There's a lot on the line when it comes to Jesus. This issue of Jesus' authority is a major issue. This isn't something that you can just escape or, or avoid. Jesus forces a decision on the people of his day and he's forcing a decision on you today. Does he have authority in your life? He says that he's equal with the Father in activity and in honor. And then thirdly, letter C, he's equal with the Father in judgment. Equal with the Father in judgment. In verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Are you hearing his voice today? Are you hearing his voice, those who are spiritually dead, hearing his voice, giving you new spiritual life. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given, notice this, authority to execute judgment. Jesus is the ultimate judge. And it says, he is the, son, he is the ultimate judge because he is the Son of Man. So earlier in the passage, he referred to himself in verse 25 as the Son of God. 
Now in verse 27, he's referring to himself as the son of man. What's going on there? Is, is son of God sort of an elevated title and son of man is sort of a, a lesser title? Well, no, that's not it actually. A son of man actually is also an elevated title that Jesus use, uses to describe himself. He's referring to a character that's described in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. And he's the guy that Daniel 7 is talking about. Daniel 7 is describing a human. Jesus is fully human. He is a son of man, and he is the one who has been given the authority to rule over the whole world. He is the one who is the judge. And just as in Daniel 7, the father, the ancient of days, gave the son of man the authority to rule, Jesus here says that his father has given him authority to rule over the world. Verse 29, or sorry, verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of, of judgment. Now, some of you might read that and think, well, isn't this saying that we're saved by works and not by and not by faith? Well, listen, faith and works, that's a false, a false dichotomy. It's not either faith or works, but everyone who is saved by faith, everyone who believes, that fundamentally changes their behavior. And so what Jesus says in verse 29 about doing good is completely consistent with what he says in verse 24. The person who believes. You can even draw a line in your Bible between verse 24 and verse 29. That those, the, the only way that those two things can be consistent is if someone believes and then therefore as a result their behavior is changed and they do good. You see, the word believe occurs about 98 times in the gospel of John and as we go through the Gospel of John, we get a clearer definition of what it means to believe in him. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and, and some of this is new to you, I'd encourage you just to read, take home one of those Bibles, read the Gospel of John, circle every time you see the word believe and formulate a definition of what it means to believe. Jesus here is making it clear that believing is not simply what we say or what we think. No, believing changes what we do. And so Jesus here describes his authority. Then look down at, at verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Witness and testimony, this is all courtroom language. Jesus had already said that he is the judge. But in the minds of the Pharisees, he's the accused. See how this is all mixed up? So he decides to play their game a little bit. He says, okay, I am the judge. I just declared my authority to you. But if you don't believe my authority, then let me call some witnesses. Let, let, me, let me play by your rules. And he says, listen, if he, he's not saying that he can't be trusted in verse 31 when he says, you know, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. No, he's playing by their rules. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, Jesus said, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime, for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed, only the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So he's just playing by their rules. He's just saying, I know you, I know you guys want to follow the Bible. I know you guys want to follow the Old Testament. And Jesus says, listen, I know the Old Testament inside and out, and I know you, you want witnesses, and so I'm going to bring before you witnesses beyond myself. 
And so in this last section, we're going to see Jesus defend his authority. So he demonstrates his authority, he declares his authority, and now he's going to defend his authority. So now I'm going to read from verses 32 to uh, 47. It says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that, bears, that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you, and, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus defends his authority. He calls several witnesses. The first witness that he calls is his cousin, John the Baptist. In verse 30 and 35, he talks about John's witness and how he told people about Jesus to believe in him, that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then he talks about his miracles in verse 36. He says, listen, look at the works. Look at this man who was paralyzed for 38 years. Explain that. That is, a, that is a witness, that is a testimony to back up that what I'm saying is true. So we have the witness of John and then the witness of miracles. And then lastly, the witness of the Father. The witness of the Father speaking through the scriptures. He talks about his dad. He says in verse 37, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you'll have eternal life. It's, it's, the scriptures describe how the Father has been interacting with humankind throughout centuries. And, and in the scriptures, these, these Bible scholars, these Pharisees, these Jewish religious leaders were scouring over the Bible thinking that if they knew the Bible really well, then they would receive the gift of eternal life. And Jesus says, you search the scriptures thinking that, the, that this book will give you eternal life? No, this book, look what he says. It is they that bear witness about me. Jesus says all of the Old Testament points to me. The scripture is not an end in itself. The scripture is the father preparing the way to send his son to point to him. It's the witness of the father coming to us through the scriptures. And then it's, we should really pause at verse 40 here for a second. Especially if you're here today and you're just kind of putting in time. You're not a follower of Jesus. Just someone invited you. 
And you might have a lot of reasons about why you don't believe in Jesus, you know, evolution or, you know, the history of, you know, some of the tragedy, evil things that Christians have done in the past, like the Crusades or whatever. And you, you think, I got all these reasons why I don't believe in God or some personal suffering, some things that have happened to you. Why would a good God allow these, allow these things to happen? But look what he says in verse 40. He says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. At the end of the day, for these Pharisees, for these Jewish leaders, the reason why they didn't believe in Jesus was not intellectual. It wasn't for a lack of information. It wasn't for a lack of evidence. It was a stubborn, rebellious refusal to submit to his authority. Ultimately, that's what it's all about. That's why Jesus set this whole thing up. To challenge them on this very issue. Are you allowing Jesus to have authority in your life? He says, I do not receive glory from people. I'm in verse 41 and then verse 42. But I, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I mean, that would have really hit them. They, they thought they were filled with the love of God. They, they thought they loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength as they were commanded to in Deuteronomy 6. They, they thought that they had the love, but Jesus said to them, no, you don't have the love of God within you. You might think, well, I'm a spiritual person. I'm a religious person. Of course, of course I love God. I, I don't need Jesus to save me because I'm a good person and I love God. Jesus says to the most religious, the most devoted people you could ever imagine, and says, you don't have the love of God in your heart. See, it comes down to authority and it comes down to love. We want to be the authority and we want to be the object of our own love. The most famous verse in the Gospel of John, really the most famous verse in the whole Bible, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world. What kind of world did he love? He loved the kind of world that didn't love him. For God so loved the world that had no love for him in their hearts, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have the gift of eternal life. We don't love God, we love ourselves. We don't want to submit to God's authority, we want to be the ultimate authority. That's what got Adam and Eve into trouble in the first place, when they ate the fruit. It wasn't about the fruit, it was about the power, it was about the authority, it was about not having to answer to anyone. Jesus makes it very clear to us here where we stand apart from apart from his saving work. You might, you might hear, you know what, yeah, yeah, God loves me. Yeah, I love me too. I don't need God's love. And Jesus has come to change all of that. To, he is the ultimate authority, yet he came and submitted himself to crooked human authority and suffered and died on a cross to bear the penalty that all of us deserve for our rebellion against God's authority. His heart stopped beating because there was no love for God in our hearts. So that he could transform our hearts. So that when he was resurrected three days later, we could walk in newness of life and truly love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Look what he says in verse 40. He asks the question, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Again, believe is the most important, it's, it's the thesis, it's the, it's the main theme of the Gospel of John. That we would believe, and he asked them, how can you believe when you're so focused on receiving glory, thinking that it's about how you live your life and being a good person, rather than focusing on the glory that comes from God, which comes from believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. 
Then in verse 45, he says, don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Moses is the one who brought down the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. You know the Ten Commandments, you shall not lie, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery. And you're probably like, check, check, check. I'm not a liar, I don't steal, I don't commit adultery. You know, I'm a, I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good person. Jesus says, Moses and those Ten Commandments, again, he's getting the courtroom in its right order. He says, Moses, you think that Moses is going to be on your side? You think the Ten Commandments, you're just going to be like, check, 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 check? At the end of the age, it's going to be like X, 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 ten times. The Bible says if you break one of the commandments, it's like you've broken all of them. How many lies do you have to tell before you become a liar? Jesus talked about committing adultery in your heart just by looking at someone with lustful intent. Let alone the last commandment, which is the most troubling, covetousness. Which is not actually doing something, it's thinking something. Wanting what someone else has. Not being content with what God has has given you. Moses will accuse all of us on the last day. But then there's a glimmer of hope in what Jesus says at the very end in verse 47 and verse 46. He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe his, how will you believe my words? Jesus said that Moses wrote about him. Moses didn't just uh, write, you know, the Ten Commandments into those stone tablets the second time after they were broken the first time. Moses also wrote on scrolls or papyrus or something. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in the very last book that Moses wrote, right before he died, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, he talked about a prophet that was going to come. And he was going to speak the word of God. And he was going to speak, guess what, with authority. And Moses told the people, when this prophet comes, you must listen to him. You must submit to his authority. And later on, the very next chapter, John chapter 6, the people are going to say, when they're talking about Jesus, they're going to ask, is this the prophet? Is this the one that Moses said was coming in Deuteronomy chapter 18? But that's not the only place where Moses wrote about Jesus. In the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, when the serpent lured them away from God, God promised to send a snake crusher. God promised to send a hero who was going to crush the head of the serpent. That is Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. We sang today about death and sin and the enemy being defeated. Jesus is that ultimate hero. God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 that through his offspring, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. That's Jesus. He is that descendant of Abraham. Genesis 49 talks about the true Lion King, the Lion of Judah, that Jacob proclaimed over one of his sons. Moses wrote this down. He wrote it about Jesus. In the book of Exodus, this lion, the the picture transforms to a lamb, the Passover lamb that was slain to, to cover The sins of the people. Then when the people are wandering in the wilderness, manna, bread from heaven. Chapter 16, I didn't really know how to draw manna. So there you go, bread from heaven. 
And then the whole book of Leviticus, you've got the tabernacle. Uh, Jesus, in John chapter 1, it says the word became flesh. The book of Leviticus, tabernacle. It's because they were entering in that number up there at the top. Someone might need to go and check on their, their child, check your little tag. That's why we're a little delayed there. Uh, Leviticus, tabernacle. Jesus, the word, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the sacrifice, like the sacrifice that's burning on that altar. And he's the ultimate high priest. And then the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, the rock that was struck and water flowed out of it. Violence was done to the rock and life-giving water poured out for everyone to have their thirst quenched. Violence was done to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is the rock, and life-giving water welling up to eternal life was poured out for everyone to have their thirst quenched. And then in Numbers 21, a bronze serpent put on a pole. Looks a lot like a cross, doesn't it? And whoever looked to the bronze serpent was saved from that particular plague. In the same way, we are called upon to look at Jesus and his sacrifice for us on the cross. This is the prophet that Moses said. You need to listen to him. You need to submit to his authority. He has the authority to give orders. He has the authority to make decisions. He has the authority to enforce obedience. He is worthy of honor. He will judge the entire world. Every human being that has ever lived and died and been buried in some cave or tomb or wherever they may be will hear his voice and every single human being will be raised again and will be judged and the result will be life eternal or judgment that is eternal and it all hinges on the issue of authority. Will you submit to the authority of the Son of God? Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we want to evaluate in our own lives where we stand in terms of authority. Is the way that we're living our lives showing and demonstrating that we're following your command, that we're walking in obedience to you? Is the way that we are parenting is the way that we are living out our singleness, is the way that we are working at our jobs, is the way that we are handling our trials or the ups and downs in life. Are we submitting to your authority? Lord God, we want to maybe commit for the first time or recommit ourselves that you are Lord, that you are master, that you are the ultimate authority. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here right now who came into this, came into this auditorium thinking that they were the ultimate authority in their lives, I pray that they would bow and acknowledge that you are the authority and that you suffered and died for them and that they would come to know you and believe in you. God, thank you that we don't give you authority. It's not delegated to you. You already have it. We pray, God, that you would allow us to see it and to embrace it and to recognize it and to treasure it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.